Hi, everyone. It's Dr. Tim and Hillary for another session of Dr. Tim's Aquatics podcast. And this time we have a very special guest, our first guest on the Dr. Tim's Aquatic podcast, Dr. Jesse Sanders, who is a vet up in Santa Cruz, California, and her specialty is aquatic veterinary medicine. So we're going to be talking to her and getting her perspective and ideas about what you can do when you feel you think your fish is sick or you know your fish is sick, what's the best course of action? Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Sanders. Yes. Thank you very much for having me, Dr. Tim. Why don't you start off and tell us uh, and our listeners just a little bit about, you know, how you got into this because you, you, you are very specialized. There's not a lot of aquatic vets, are there? No, we're growing slowly. Um, but when I was younger, I always wanted to be a veterinarian and I just, you know, figured there were small animal vets and large animal vets. And when I was an undergraduate, I got my bachelor's in marine biology from the University of Rhode Island. I had the great opportunity to go volunteer at Mystic Aquarium and loved every second that I was working with their fish and invertebrate collection and started, you know, asking their veterinary staff, you know, about their careers. So they kind of changed my veterinary trajectory from, you know, the traditional small animal path to looking, you know, a little bit outside the box and considering aquatics. So when I started veterinary school, I really thought that I would be an aquarium veterinarian, but the jobs are few and far between and very, very competitive. So thankfully, when I was in my last clinical year of veterinary school, I got to shadow a veterinarian who's up out of Buffalo, New York, uh, Dr. Helen Sweeney, who has a small animal exotics and fish clinic. And she really turned me on to, you know, kind of the flow of private practice. And I found it was a significantly better fit for me. So after I graduated from Tufts University with my veterinary degree, I actually opened my own all aquatic veterinary practice, and we're coming up on 10 years in practice uh, next month. Congratulations. And Thank you. It's a great career, folks. If you like science, helping animals, and aquatics, uh, as I'm sure Dr. Sanders would tell you, it's it's a lot of fun and very interesting, and you uh, don't know what's going to come up your door day, any day, do you? No, no, it, it's it's really great that you, it, no, no day is going to be the same. Let's start off with the first general question. Okay, yeah. We talked a lot about like different things that you can do overall to maintain healthy aquariums. So what would you say, Dr. Sanders, are important factors to ensure fish health? Like, do you need to be worried more about your fish getting enough exercise and having flow in the tank? Do you need to be worried about having good food and nutrition, um, healthy bacterial biomes? What would you say are some of the top factors? So when it comes to keeping fish healthy, really it comes down to two major points. The first being the environment. The environment that a fish is kept in is obviously going to vary significantly from species to species. Not all fish that are currently available in the pet trade are really that well suited to, you know, the traditional tank 
lifestyle. With that environment, obviously comes, you know, enough space to call their own, having, you know, appropriate places to hide if they're, say, not the most outgoing species, um, making sure that when you mix species together or have a certain number of one species in the same environment, that again, they all have you know, the basic requirements that they need to be less stressful, I guess is the best way to put it. And also maintaining good, healthy water quality. We've had this discussion uh, at least a couple times in the last couple weeks that perfectly clear, beautiful water, as much as we like it as humans, really isn't the best thing for your fish. Having an environment that incorporates, you know, all the different trophic levels from the basic bacteria up to the little mini zooplankton really go a long way in keeping fish of any species in any environment content. And then in addition to their environment, uh, making sure that they are fed appropriately with the correct nutritional profile um, is another thing, you know, just like we feed ourselves our fruits and vegetables to stay healthy, fish really need to have an appropriate diet. Um, For most pet species, we really don't know exactly what their requirements are. So a lot of the recommendations that I give as a veterinarian are actually based on aquaculture and ornamental aquacultured species that we have available. Um, For a lot of owners, you know, there are commercial diets that are you know, fairly decent, but there's always some small things that owners can do in order to make sure that the fish that they have are in the right nutritional state. And we've talked about this a lot, folks. Your gin clear water might be good for <laughs> your eyes, but it's not good for your fish. Uh, fish right don't know. There's no fish that live in gin clear, bacteria free, you know, water, and that's that's part of the issue. And then feeding, uh, feeding's the key to everything. If you eat poorly. If your fish eat poorly, you're more susceptible, you're more stressed, and then things can happen. So it all starts with the basics. Dr. Sanders, I feel like a couple of years back, you had a um, virtual presentation about fish nutrition. Um, is that still available for people to go and watch? Um, yes, we do have a basic nutrition breakdown on our YouTube page, uh, but I believe you and I also did some series <laughs> on that as well. What was that? Two, three years ago? Yeah. It's been a while, but you were the one that I learned. I was like the first person I ever heard talking about fish nutrition. I was like, yes, I feel like, like as hobbyists, we don't know nearly enough about what our fish need. Yeah. That that would be correct. We just don't have the research behind it right now. Yeah. And then people want convenience. That's flakes are convenient, but they're not maybe the, well, they're not the most nutritionally best food to feed all the time. A very, would you agree, Dr. Sanders, a very diet is important? Oh yes, absolutely. And making sure, you know, that it mimics a fish's, you know, natural feeding style. So for example, goldfish, which are a very common pet, um, if you're feeding them, you know, floating pellets, which is great if you want to see them come up into the surface and suck in a bunch of air, their normal feeding behavior is foraging on the bottom of their tank and, you know, taking the rocks or sand and kind of sifting through it and spitting it out. And that's usually how goldfish, you know, out in the wild, their ancient ancestors spent their days. So if they don't have that during the day, they usually tend to get a little bit bored. And a little bit fat. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And uh, fatty, fatty livers and fatty tissue and fish that look like footballs is not a good sign. No, correct. Now, let's. Sorry, Hillary, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, if if you have a fish that is looking a little bit rotund, what would you recommend 
to do to, I guess, help them put them on a diet, help them lose weight? It seems odd to talk about fish like that. but um, So the first thing you should do if you suspect your fish is overweight um, is definitely to evaluate the dietary profile. I've seen more and more commercially made fish diets really pump up the fat content. We're talking to like 10 to 20%, which for most pet fish that live in a confined space is really way too high. And certainly, you know, the size of the tank overall, if you have very active fish, you want to make sure they have lots of room to swim around. If you do suspect your fish might be on the chunky side, um, there's a couple internal things that can, you know, present as a little obese fish versus one that is fecund and full of eggs. Or if there's something else, you know, going on that could be a tumor or something else that would need veterinary intervention. Ooh, that's a good point. I was thinking about just like being overweight, but if they do have a tumor, like what are some signs for that? So tumors in fish can really present in a lot of different ways. Um, obviously, it depends on the type of tumor or neoplasia that's present. Um, if it's external, that's usually fairly easy for owners to pick out. Goldfish are known for getting neurofibromas or spindle cell tumors. Um, these basically look like pale lumps on their sides. Um, doesn't really bother the fish at all, but it can be very distressing to the owner. And then you have obviously internal tumors, which can arise from pretty much any different type of organ tissue. And again, with that, your fish may look perfectly normal. They might look a little bit rounder than normal. Um, sometimes it's hard for, you know, if it's slow growing over time to really tell until that fish's appearance has changed significantly. It's really rare that you'd be able to see an internal tumor until the fish actually starts to look lopsided. If a person thinks that their fish has that, is there much they can do? The way to diagnose and confirm any internal salomic tumors um, is going to require a veterinarian with an ultrasound. Um, it's part of my normal exam for any fish that looks a little bit funky inside. And with that ultrasound, we're really able to determine how large that tumor is. We might be able to tell if it is attached to any particular tissue. And if it's small enough, which again, you got to catch these things really early, um, we can do surgery to remove it. But most of the time, again, just because we don't catch them early enough, there's nothing we can do except make that fish comfortable and make sure they enjoy the, the rest of their lives. And let's talk a little bit about people want to dose. They think their fish are sick. They see spots. Maybe uh, I think a lot of times people tend to panic and it's very hard, short of having a vet run a test, isn't it? Um, to know exactly whether a fish has a viral disease, a bacterial disease, a parasite. So what can a, a hobbyist do? Well, I, I agree with you about the, you know, you see a little spot on your fish and suddenly the panic sets in. Uh, we see a lot of fish owners that suspect their fish have ick, also known as white spot disease, that actually turns out to be, you know, a little bubble that's stuck next to the skin. It could be the the breeding tubercles that we see on goldfish. It might be a lymphocystis tumor. And just grabbing any old medication off the shelf and dumping it in uh, is not really the best thing to do. Certainly with anything that is infectious in a fish tank, if you suspect one fish is infected, it's likely the entire system is. So even if you were to say, remove that fish, put them in say a hospital tank and treating them, uh, it might not take care of the overall issue, but certainly, you know, 
always take anything off the the pet store shelves if you're able to research it before you add it to the tank that can certainly help i just found an ick medication this week that had an antibiotic in it for some reason which obviously is not going to do anything against a parasitic outbreak so highly recommend again if you do suspect there's something on your fish if you are able to you know watch that fish's overall behavior especially with ick it will cause respiratory distress as well so that's something you can really use to determine of oh is this you know a little bubble that's stuck is it lymphocystis is it you know just a breeding tubercle and sometimes you know the veterinarian can give you some guidance but it's really hard for us to determine from either a picture or a video that is emailed over to us what exactly is going on with your fish yes we get a lot of pictures and you can't make out anything it's very hard it's dark you can't really see to make any type of uh, educated guess about it, what it might be. And I think we've talked about this too, just dumping antibiotics into a tank. You're almost playing, and, and again, you can speak to this, it's my opinion, you're almost playing Russian roulette because the antibiotics, if they're active, will kill or set back your nitrifying bacteria which is now going to cause elevated ammonia nitrite, which is going to add more stress to the system, which is can, can exasperate what the fish might have. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, I agree with that statement entirely. If whatever you know you bought off the shelf, these medications are not regulated in any way, shape, or form. Um, trust me, we've had discussions with the FDA, and they it's just not a priority for them at this time. So, if there is anything you know that's actually what it says it is at the correct concentration, yes, you will absolutely wipe out your biofilter and therefore cause that ammonia influx that is going to stress out fish. For us, if we actually need to give a fish an antibiotic, we're either giving it directly through an injection or we're giving them a medicated laced feed and that way they'll take it into their bodies and it's not going to touch the biofilter. Right. We've and we've talked about that. So it's it's not the the wisest thing to just go to the store, buy antibiotics, and we've had people do this, combine, oh, I'm going to take a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this over here, and throw it all together and make a cocktail. It really can cause your whole tank to be wiped out, it, and it's one of those, you're, you're killing your fish with your unintentional goodness, but you don't know what you have. Yes, correct. We've seen those cocktails many, many times. Yeah. And when should a, a hobbyist call a vet? Obviously, the sooner the better, but like you say, people rush down and it's just a bubble. Is there, are there some indications of when it's a good time to contact a vet? And how do you find a, a vet that will help uh, the person who has you know, a nice marine tank? They've put a lot of money and effort into it. The pets, obviously, I've had fish all my life and they're they're just like having a dog or a cat. They're you they're members of of your family. You know, you yes. want to do what's good with for them. Absolutely. So when it comes to identifying actual disease in fish, it kind of goes into two categories. The first is physical signs of disease. So this is, you know, a spot, some missing scales, the fins look torn. And these are very easy for a lot of owners to pick out. Now, 
a lot of the time, some of these physical changes can just be stress responses to poor water quality or something else in the environment that is stressing out this fish. Uh, betta fish, for example, who are not kept in appropriate conditions, um, they really need a filter and a heater. We get a lot of calls for fin rot in these guys. But what it actually is, is when a fish or any individual is stressed out, their clotting factors will increase within their blood flow. And those little clots will get stuck in the very tiny capillaries of their tail, causing blood loss, you know, to that area and the area of the fin that is caudal or distal to that will die off. So those physical signs, again, are the ones that owners are able to spot. But the behavioral signs of illness, those are usually a little bit more true to how a fish is feeling overall. So behavioral signs include position in the water column. So depending on the species, they should either, you know, be towards the top, in the middle, on the bottom. They should be able to keep their body straight, upright, not listing to the side. They should be able to swim without, you know, bursts of severe effort to get to the top and how they behave during feeding time. So again, you're going to have some fish that are super aggressive eaters and you have some that are going to be shyer eaters. But obviously a big change in either of those behaviors could be an indication that your fish is sick. Now, again, those behavioral signs can be hard for beginner owners to kind of pick up, but it's always something, you know, if you notice it one day, keep an eye on that fish. If you notice it for two days, that's when you really start to have issues. And obviously, if you have any tanks that have more than one fish that is looking odd or acting odd, um, that's really the time that you need to start getting help. Um, so my veterinary practice covers California, at least the Bay Area and Nevada. We have another subcontractor that is down out of Southern California. But you also have the American Association of Fish Vets of, at fishvets.org that has a find a fish vet button on their website to help. And you also have the World Aquatic Veterinary Medical Association for anyone who's listening outside of the U.S. They also have a button to find a fish vet. Now, if you're not able to find anyone close to you, um, our office does offer consultations to other veterinarians and they can be any veterinarian anywhere as long as they are you know, willing to put in a little extra effort. We will walk them through all the diagnostics and help interpret them and then help them develop a treatment plan so any fish anywhere is able to get good veterinary care. Well, that's, yeah, the, now there's a good use of the internet versus some of the other uses we see, but this is, this is wonderful. And now you, do you specialize at all in like koi? Do you see mostly koi marine fish? What's your, or I know bet is, you know, bet is used to be the dollar 99 fish, but now they're $599. There's some expensive, gorgeous fish out there. Yes. So about 80% of our practice is koi. So these are ornamental carp in outdoor ponds. Um, I think they're pretty much our main draw just based on where we are located in the Bay Area. There are lots of Japanese importers that are bringing fish in. And then we probably have about 15% goldfish, 4% betas, and then 1% everything else, which does include those marine tanks. Um, when I was getting started, I thought, the majority of my work would be marine tanks. But usually if you're at that level, you know, keeping 
fancy, you know, marine fish or corals, you really need to know your stuff and take quarantine and biosecurity very seriously. And that really will decrease the amount of problems that you are having in your system. Matt, that brings up a good question because we talk about this. What Do you have a, a quarantine regime or, or how would you recommend um, quarantine? I mean, I have three koi ponds in my backyard. I was lucky enough to be the recipient of some really nice Japanese koi by Mr. Kamihata, who was at, uh, he's now passed, but the owner of Hakari. And I haven't put any fish in that big pond since he gave me those fish 18 years ago. They spawn, they're by themselves. I'm afraid to put anything in that pond because the fish are so gorgeous and it's a very natural pond. I have a, what I call a gross uh, filter. You know, there's no UV, there's no swimming pool filter. I use the water goes up my hillside and goes through a bog of a pond or a plants and the water's the water's tannic. It's a little brown, but tannic water prevents a lot of bacterial growth in what I've found. Um, but what what would you recommend as a quarant- general quarantine procedure? Wait, can I so, can I add on to that first? <laughs> why, why should we quarantine and then what would you recommend? So quarantine is critical for any aquatic system because it can hinder the entrance of any bacteria, virus, and parasites coming into a healthy system. So like I said before, fish really like to share everything that's in their environment. So fish coming from a vendor or the pet store, they could have potentially mixed with a lot of other individuals, tanks, equipment. And even though they might not look sick when you're bringing them home from the store, um, any disease is going to have an incubation period where basically, you know, that pathogen, be it bacteria, virus, or a parasite, is essentially just growing in numbers. And for the most part, the fish can handle it. But once it gets beyond, you know, what they're able to control, that's when they'll start showing clinical signs with those behavioral and physical signs of disease. So quarantine is essentially isolating any new individual for what we feel is a fairly conservative four to six weeks. Um, This number is not based on random information. Essentially, it takes into consideration all of the potential pathogens. Again, these are viruses, bacteria, or parasites, and takes into consideration how long that incubation period is and then how long it takes to show clinical signs. Now, that four to six weeks is going to vary depending on the water temperature. So when the water is warmer, uh, a lot of pathogen life cycles will go a lot faster. So again, the colder the water is, it might take a little while longer for you to have those signs. And we know that nobody likes to have, you know, a separate system for over a month trying to keep their fish healthy. But again, it is essentially like rolling the dice and seeing what fun thing has been brought home from the store with your fish. And that's usually the most common thing that we see with people adding fish without quarantine is, oh boy, there's some new fun disease in your pond or tank that wasn't there previously. It really is playing Russian roulette. There's kind of two groups of people, those that have experienced not quarantining and regretting it, and those that will because you make a last 
second purchase and you say, oh, it'll be okay. It's not going to be okay. Yep. I've got a brand new tank right now that I'm setting up. It doesn't even have water in it, but before I get the new tank set up, I've already got my quarantine tank ready, about to get it cycling here shortly. I don't play around. Awesome. So what? So now, you know, the worst has happened. They People didn't quarantine. Not, not that quarantine absolutely guarantees you won't get a, a outbreak, but the tank is wiped out. And the person is going to restart. What do you recommend they do? Uh, can you repeat that one more time? Say you have your tank and the worst has happened and all your fish died. And that, you know, everything was wiped out and you remove the fish. Should you bleach the tank, hit the tank hard with antibiotics, just drain it? Um, what's your recommendation of what the, uh, hobbyists should do before they put more fish in the tank. So I guess it depends on what actually wiped out your entire tank. If it was, say, a virus or a bacteria or a parasite, essentially, when you've removed all the fish, you have broken most of the life cycles of those pathogens. So you will be able to kind of run the tank without any fish in it. Again, for that quarantine period of four to six weeks, anything that's been lingering in the system um, will essentially just perish without any fish hosts. Now, that's not to say if you don't, say, have invertebrates in the tank, um, there are some vertebrate species that can carry various diseases. Sometimes they are more or less resilient, um, depending on what the, the pathogen that currently wiped out your tank. Certainly, if you are concerned about anything that could potentially reach your new fish, um, again, it's going to depend a little bit on if there was a diagnosis or any sort of presumptive diagnosis that was made. Um, bleach is, again, going to be fairly, you know, nuclear bomb for any bacteria or anything lurking in there. Um, make sure that you remove your decor items. Um, a lot of that is not very resilient to bleach, but any sort of substrate, rocks, sand will be perfectly fine. Um, if you do suspect that there might have been a mycobacterial infection. Um, we usually don't see these diagnosed very commonly because unfortunately you do need a patient that has already passed away um, and they tend to be very slow growing tumors, but they've actually done studies that Lysol is actually a better um, agent at getting through the cell walls of that particular bacteria. Um, so again, you can do, you know, that lovely 10% bleach and just get everything out, add some sodium thio, and then pretty much drain it and start from scratch with new biofilters and everything. But you, you were saying the quarantine is like six weeks. So it's not just what you look in books and people say you break the cycle, keep the tank fish free for seven to 10 days and you're good to go. I wish it was that simple, but unfortunately, there's too many things. I mean, we they've done a lot of studies, uh, especially with uh, like koi herpes virus that can still be, you know, found in the mud weeks after the fish are removed. And it can some things can actually linger in the biofilm as well. That's either in the filtration around the edges of the aquarium. Yeah, you you bring up a good point, the biofilms. And we've talked about this. It's a big problem. Like in zebrafish systems, not not all bacteria are single-celled living in the water. They're living in these biofilms. They're living in the, the organic uh, soils. And just draining the tank does not 
kill the bacteria. They they can many of these can form spores. They're evolutionarily does you know made to st- to live through or survive. Not they're not living. They're surviving through periods of you know desiccation or less than optimal periods. So just draining your tank and it isn't really going to cut it. Would you agree with that? Yes, that's correct. I mean, if you're just going to I mean, if you leave it dry for a while, that that's a different story. But if you're just going to, you know, drain it and then fill it up again, that's not sufficient. But prevention is the key. Good nutrition and quarantining uh, is is just important. It's it'll save you a lot of headaches. It's it's kind of a pain, you know, empty tank for the first six weeks, but uh, it'll it'll pay off in the long run. Yes, absolutely. So what what are some key things that we haven't talked about that you would recommend to a to a fish keeper of I mean I always say you've got to look you've got fish to look at them look at your fish spend time looking at your tank and observing them as you mentioned earlier the first sign of a fish maybe not feeling well is its behavior clamped fins shimming at the top not eating but you have to re- you have to know the regular the normal behavior to n- know the abnormal behavior. What else are keys and hints? Yes, absolutely. So going along with that, uh, there's this lovely myth that fish are you know beginner low maintenance pets that are good for you know small children and families that you know maybe don't have enough time for another pet, say a cat or a dog, and this is absolutely a lie. Um, a lot of people, you know, you don't get the, this is how you take care of fish pamphlet when you go to the pet store and buy a tank and some fish, but you really have to, again, take the time to set up the environment correctly, make sure that they're quarantined, make sure that everybody has their environmental requirements, especially if you're mixing species. And then with your routine maintenance. So again, checking your water chemistry, making sure that you're maintaining your biofilter. This is something that a lot of new tank owners struggle with because again, they're just under the false pretense that, you know, these fish will essentially just take care of themselves if I just throw them in this tank. Maybe you weren't in your clinical practice when Nemo came out, but I heard horror stories where people were going down because their kids wanted Nemo and many people didn't realize Nemo lived in saltwater. So, oh yes. Was, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. We we saw that. And again, with the the second movie that came out, we yeah. were in practice then. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, that that was a hard one to yeah. to hear about. Yeah. Or or kids grabbing the net and freeing Nemo, thinking that uh, you know we're go- we're gonna free Nemo. That's not gonna work either. Take uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. I think there was actually a story about that in the L.A. Times. But uh, yes. So, do you have a we in the time remaining, one or two maybe stories about something crazy that's you've seen. You you know you're like shaking your head uh, in your aquatic clinical practice that you would mind sharing with us. Oh yes, so our practice will regularly attend uh, koi shows. So these are essentially koi beauty pageants, same as you would a cat or a dog. And I remember I family had come up to us and we were kind of talking to them about what we do and we know how their their pond was doing and the mom came up and said what do you recommend to do cpr on a fish 
So essentially, this was a fish that had jumped out of the pond, which happens from time to time. Um, you know, we were discussing, okay, well, you know, you put it back in the water, you try to ventilate it. And she mentions, what about mouth to mouth? And I'm, you know, trying to to picture how that would work with, say, an aquarium pump underwater. So I'm asking her to describe it. And she said, my husband put his mouth up to the fish's mouth and tried to breathe for her. So then goes into the lovely explanation of how gills work and how they are not quite lungs and how doing mouth to mouth <laughs> on a fish was probably not the best idea. Um, yeah, but yeah, that, I mean, folks. <laughs> I, I was trying, I was trying it. It's just, it, it was a very, mm -hmm. we, we hear a lot of odd stories at, at those shows, but th that one just took the cake. Yeah. yeah. So if, if you do need, you know, to, to ventilate your fish, one, would you say uh, a water pump with a small hose where you're putting a lot of water past the gills so that the oxygen in the water comes in contact with the gills is a, is a way to do that? A good way to do that? Yes. So again, this was for a fish that had jumped out of the pond. Um, a lot of the times that the fish land with their operculums or their gill flaps closed and the gill tissue stays moist, the fish is actually going to be doing fairly well. So when you put them back in the pond, um, a lot of people will move the fish backwards and forwards, which unfortunately is only about half effective because the gill tissue only really works best in one direction with water going in the mouth and out through the opercular gap. Um, if you are going to ventilate them, the, the, you got to keep in mind though, that if you direct that hose right down the middle of the fish, it could inadvertently go down their esophagus. Um, and essentially that's not really going to help with their respiratory rate at all. So you just got to kind of keep it tilted um, from one side to the other with the gill tissue specifically. And that's really the, the best thing that you can do to possibly help a fish. Again, it depends on how long they've been out of the water. And sometimes we're just not going to know that, but it's definitely worth the effort if if your fish's gills are still red and still wet to try to give them some ventilation support. Hillary, any last minute questions as we, as we wrap up? The other day on your Instagram stories, you had a post about filters and about how long you can use the same filter. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh yes, absolutely. Filters for aquarium, you know, components, whether they're a canister filter, or one of those hang on the back filters. Um, there's many different materials that are out there and obviously not all of them are built the same. So again, your filter media, especially, you know, those little porous sponges or floss filters, this is going to be where a good chunk of your beneficial bacteria that make over your, your um, bacterial biome, that's where they hang out. And it's a really good spot because it gets high water flow so they can see a lot of the, you know, the different products, the ammonia, nitrite coming through your system. And I know on all of the boxes that it says to replace your sponges every X months, which is a terrible, terrible idea. Because as you know, it takes a while for you to cultivate all those good bacteria. So why would you just throw it away. Well, it's for the filter companies to probably make more money off of you. Um, and some of those, you know, those silly floss filters that have like five little pellets of carbon in there, they're really not going to last that long and just break down super quickly. So with the sponge that I have in my system right now, I've actually had the same sponge in there for eight 
years and it's you know it's not pretty it smells a little funky but it does its job and you know we've been maintaining it really well so there are you know replacement parts that you can get for other filters and i really like those dent sponges um provided you know you rinse them out in the tank water every once in a while they have a lot of little nooks and crannies for the bacteria to hang out you can take you know any filter that you have and cut a little square to fit any filter and it'll last you the rest of the life of your tank so how do you clean your that that sponge filter do you do you run it under tap water at all? You you take out aquarium water and just squeeze it with your hands really well? Yes. So after I've done my gravel siphoning, um, I have, you know, my little five-gallon bucket of tank water, and then I'll just empty my filter components into the bucket and wring them out in in tank water. If you obviously if you use tap water, you're at the risk of potentially exposing them to chlorinated water, which again will kill all the bacteria that are present. Well, we're going to wrap this up, and I would just like to say a huge thank you to Dr. Jesse Sanders for spending some time with us today. And uh, Hillary, will you'll you'll put her website up or her contact. We don't want people inundating her, but she's got lots of good advice. If yep. if that's okay, Dr. Sanders, if we do that, so people. Oh can, yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. If you're watching this on YouTube, it will be in the video. But if you're watching or if you're listening to the podcast, I'll have it in the show notes. We really appreciate you taking your time to join our podcast this morning. And it's it's nice to have a you know someone who does treat as a professional, you know, and treating fish because you hear so much rumors and what people want to do. And I just always have told people you're you're making it harder on yourself and a lot harder on your fish. They're actually pretty resilient. It, I think that most disease problems, my personal opinion, are caused by by poor nutrition um, and then poor water quality. You have to maintain it. Aquariums have to be maintained. Um, it's, just, it's just part of the responsibility. Yes, I agree with that 100%. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. All right. Thank you, everybody. This has been Dr. Tim Hillary and our guest, Dr. Jesse Sanders, for another session of Dr. Tim's Aquatics podcast.